So we're rolling right along, right, on our Wellspring bicycle. <laughs> and we're making full use of the two components, the wheels on our bicycle. Go round and round, never mind. To keep us fully involved in all that Wellspring has to offer. Remember that front wheel? I talked about that before. The front wheel, that's that together component. So together, we're receiving all of our teaching, and together we're experiencing all that fellowship and the encouragement in our Wellspring discussion groups. And last month, our last time, we talked about one of the spokes on that front wheel, and that was uh, our Wellspring sisters, remember? Our sisters are here. That's the one special person in your Wellspring discussion group that you get to connect with, encourage each other, uh, pray with each other, care for each other. So today, I'm going to talk about a spoke in that back wheel, and that's the on your own or on our own component. Remember, on our own, we're in the Word of God daily, and on our own, we're doing our Wellspring homework assignment. So, before I reveal this spoke to you, I want to make it clear that there's a, the, the tool I'm going to reveal, it's an optional tool, but we're taking the time this morning to talk about it so that we each have information that we need uh, in order to be able to pray about it and to see if it would be a useful tool for you. And it is called, ta-da, ready? Bible Reading Themes. Um, I like to think of it as my Bible discovery tool uh, because it is a tool and it's great. It's designed to help each of us gain richer insights and greater understanding and a meaningful study as we sit down to meet with God in his word. And it's the tool... And it's designed to help each of us be on the lookout. That's why it's the discovery, right? To be on the lookout for a common thread or a common theme that is woven throughout the entire Word of God and to keep a record of the discoveries. That's what it is, just as the year progresses. Well, in Wellspring, we're all reading several chapters a day in our Bibles, right? So wouldn't it be helpful if while we're reading these chapters, we had a tool that helps us stay focused and engaged so that we get more out of what we're reading? Well, that's what Bible reading themes is all about. And this morning, each of us received a sheet explaining it. It's one of your sheets. So let's look at it quickly with me. See, there are five themes to choose from. And we should each consider choosing one of them and using it this year. So let's look at them. They're examples of faith in the lives of men and women in Scripture. The first one is truths about God and his character so that I can know him better. And then there's examples of faith in the lives of men and women in Scripture. And there's truths that will comfort and strengthen me in times of adversity. Or there's principles and examples that will help me grow in my prayer life. 
And that may include worship, intercession, thanks, or confession. There's truths that will help me fight my sin in my life. Help me fight sin in my life. There's examples of good heart shepherding. Or you could choose to look for glory in the Word of God. So here's a a suggestion. Once you've chosen a theme, you could write it down or you could actually even cut it out. You could use this as a bookmark, what you cut out, just to remind you what you're looking for. You could um, write down what you discover, right? You could mark it in your Bible. You could keep a journal if you like doing that. You could type it into your phone if you like doing that. Um, And also, if you would like a brand new notebook to write it down, we have one for each of you if you'd like one. Please help yourself. They're in the box on the back table. You can do that. Cut out your theme and glue it on the front or inside if that is helpful. So you see, you're going to be so excited every time that you make a new discovery. And it's so thrilling to review all those discoveries as the year progresses. And that just helps us get more out of our Bible reading. Right, friends? So let me emphasize this. There's no right, there's no wrong way to do this. And there's no deadline, right, where you have to get started. And you can think about it now and start later. It's really um, to use it to the extent that it will serve you. That's what we want. Use it to the extent that it is most helpful to you. Use it in a way that strengthens your time in the Word as you meet with God daily. Okay. If you have any questions, you can ask Sarah and you can ask me. Okay. Thank you so much for considering. Sarah? Good to be with you all. I'm really going to try to talk loud, but it feels like I'm yelling. But I know now, having listened to a few lessons from the back, that this room soaks up the sound, I think. Okay. Okay, thanks for bearing with me. Uh, If you'll pray with me, then we will uh, jump right into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this new day. Lord, thank you that it is your will that we live today, that you are giving us breath. Um, Thank you that, Lord, you've given us new life in Christ, and um, we have eternal life in him. And that we get to come together and be his body. Thank you that you've given us your word and that your word is living and active and it's it's powerful, it's useful. Lord, it's your tool for our instruction. 
It's where you reveal yourself to us. It's how you make us more like your son. So thank you so much for all your means of grace to us. Thank you that we're together. I pray now, Lord, as we spend this time in your word, that it would be a time that you would be pleased to use for your glory, that it would be edifying, it would be encouraging. Lord, where there is sin in our lives, I pray that we would be convicted. But Lord, not not without hope. We'd be convicted so that we would turn right back to the cross and praise you and thank you for what you've done for that sin, that you've died to cleanse us and to set us free from that, and that we would press on to walk in newness of life by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and get your, pull out your notebook if you've got it. We're going to start on the back. Um, we'll do this every time we're together. We'll review our Wellspring purpose and disciplines because we don't want to lose sight um, of these disciplines that we're seeking to cultivate as we come together around God's Word. So our Wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And we have three disciplines. These should be familiar by now. They're the heart, the home, and ministry. And our purpose helps us to see how one discipline builds on another. The foundation is discipline one, uh, prayerfully shepherding our heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. And after our lesson last time on the heart, I hope this discipline makes even more sense because we saw how needy our hearts are for God and his word. And so in Wellspring, our assignment is to use a daily Bible reading plan as our tool to help us cultivate this discipline of daily meeting with God in his word. That's where heart shepherding begins, but it doesn't end there. Our time alone with God prepares us to live out gospel-transformed lives, first in our households, with our family, with our roommates. Living gospel-transformed lives means we continue to shepherd our hearts all day long. It's living in a way that trusts God and obeys God. And that gospel-transformed living overflows into relationships in the church and beyond the church, wherever God gives us opportunity to interact with others, so that the church is strengthened in its gospel purpose. And we're going to see all of these in today's lesson just woven together like the threads in a tapestry. And I hope you'll be encouraged to see how our wellspring purpose and disciplines flow right out of Titus. But before we get to the lesson, I want to talk just a little bit more about discipline one, the heart, and specifically why we go to the word of God and how we go to the word of God. We've said it every week, heart shepherding is not just opening our Bibles and reading words or even collecting information. Discipline one is about drawing near to God in his word um, and through prayer and expressing our love for him. It's worship, it's marveling over and over again at the wonders of our God, who he is, and what he's done. It's being reminded of the gospel, and that Christ's death and resurrection in our place makes us God's own children. It's a time to talk to God, to talk to him about what you're reading, to thank him for what he has done. 
for what he has spared you from, to affirm your belief in what you're reading in the word, to plead with him for grace, to draw near and to understand and to love him more and to be faithful to him. Now, you got a small sheet of paper today. At the bottom, you see Psalm 1611. And it says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. That is what our time in the Word can be, a time of joy in his presence. Now, you also have a quote from John Piper there. He writes, We must remind ourselves often of the immeasurable and superior benefits of the word of God in our lives. We must put the evidence before us that reading, pondering, memorizing, and studying the Bible will yield more joy in this life and the next than all the things that lure us from it. Do you believe that? That being near God in his word yields more joy than all the things that lure us from it? He continues, the Bible leads us to superior and lasting joy because it leads us to Christ, especially to see his glory and enjoy his fellowship. So let's not forget that. The message of Titus 2, that's our lesson today, is so encouraging. It's motivating. It's convicting. And I get excited to see God's design and his provision, what he intends to accomplish through our obedience, through our relationships with each other. But we need to start here, that God is our joy. And all that we'll talk about in Titus can be an expression of that joy that we have in God, of knowing him and being a recipient of his grace. So that small sheet of paper um, is cut to fit in your songbook. If it's something that you want to hang on to and uh, refer to later, just to uh, maybe even pray about asking God to cultivate that uh, desire in your heart, you can uh, tuck it into your songbook. All right, well, go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Titus. Now, Titus 2, verses 3 through 5, contain instructions specifically for women in the church. All of Scripture is for our instruction. All of it is God's tool for our sanctification. But this is a unique passage in Scripture in that it connects the role that women play in one another's lives with the health of the church and the reputation of God's word. Now you can see our passage summary in your notes. The word of God is honored through gospel-transformed older women training gospel-transformed younger women. And so we teach Titus 2, 3 through 5 early in the year for Wellspring so that as we continue to be equipped and encouraged in the Wellspring disciplines throughout the year, we can understand each lesson not only in terms of what it has to say to us personally, but also in how it can help us fulfill God's design here in Titus 2. So in our homework, we did an overview of the letter, and we saw that Titus is a letter written by Paul to Titus, who was Paul's son in the faith. Paul had ministered in Crete with Titus and had left Titus there to continue the work. So in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. The churches needed order and they needed elders. And beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul described a problem in the churches on Crete. There were men who professed to know God, 
but by their deeds, they denied him. And these men were exerting an influence. Verse 11 tells us they were upsetting whole families. Households were being thrown into confusion. And so Paul gave instructions that would bring order to both the churches and the households. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he begins with instructions for godly living. Let's read some of those verses, beginning in verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible. That word comes up a lot in Titus. You want to keep looking for that. Uh, sound and faith and love and perseverance. And then he addresses older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women. Now, who is going to encourage and teach the young women these things? It's not Titus, is it? This is really interesting to me, because it means that there's something about the instruction of the young women that requires an older woman. The young women didn't need just words. Titus could have given them that. They needed an example that Titus, as a man, couldn't give. They needed the example of a godly older woman. And those older women, through their words and through their example, were needed to encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Verse 5, to be sensible. There's that quality again. Pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Notice what the impact of godly character in the women will be. It will protect the honor of God's word. What a weighty call. And then Paul continues with more instructions for young men, for Titus himself, and then for slaves. And then we come to verse 11. And it begins with the word for. And that word for means because. What comes next is giving us the reason for verses 1 through 10 and all those instructions. Why, believer, are we to live this way? How are we to live this way? Well, it's because, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men and instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Remember, we saw that the older women are not to be malicious gossips and not to be enslaved to much wine. That's the kind of ungodliness that grace is instructing us to deny. And grace instructs us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We saw that instruction to be sensible up in verse 5 for the young women. Paul is saying that grace instructs us to be sensible and godly. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. This is the gospel. Who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. Believer, that is what Jesus has done for us. And that's why it's important that we pay attention to these instructions for godliness in verses 1 through 10. Here's what Paul is telling Titus to say to those in the churches. We have a problem here in Crete. Our churches aren't in order. So because of what Christ did, you have a role here to help your church. God wants to use us to make his church 
healthy and to make our households healthy. And God's grace has appeared, and it's in the process of changing us. And we have a responsibility to be the kind of women who do strengthen the church. I praise God that there are many ways in which the women of Grace Bible Church are living this out. But I think we can also have a tendency to look at this passage and come up with reasons why maybe it doesn't apply to us. You know, maybe kind of an escape clause. Maybe we think, well, look when I got saved. I didn't get saved till after my kids were raised. I have a lot of regrets. Or we think, you know, I'm just too young to be part of strengthening the church. Or we think, well, it has to do with being married. This is something married women do. Or we think that the house that we grew up in didn't model this kind of character. Or we're just very aware of the mistakes we've made. Or we just think that there's some reason why we're disqualified. But Paul is not saying, hey, listen, go clean up your act. He's saying there's a problem in the church. So remember who you are in Christ. Remember what God's grace does. And now listen to what he has saved you for and step in and fulfill the role that God has given you to strengthen his church. If you lack confidence that this is what God has for you to do, here's what you need to know. Christ has saved you out of all that you were, and he has purified you to be his own possession, zealous for good deeds, deeds which he produces in us by his grace. And your church needs you. Other women need you. And you need other women. These instructions are deliberate. They're God's design for us to display the transforming power of the gospel in our lives so that we can encourage and teach one another and so that our households are protected and so that our church is strengthened and so that we give the world no reason to discredit God's word. So let's read verses 3 through 5 in chapter 2 again and look at the kind of women that God's grace enables us to be and that our church needs us to be. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So Titus 2 describes for us the kind of women we need to be at a heart level, It tells us that we need to be involved in one another's lives, and it tells us that the honor of God's word is what's at stake. So Roman number one, numeral Roman numeral one on the outline, what older women transformed by the gospel must be. Let's start by talking about what is meant by older women. The text doesn't indicate a specific age range, and commentators say it could primarily refer to women whose children are grown. But older is a relative term. There was a time at Grace Bible Church when those approaching 30 were older. When I first started coming to this church, and I think I was 37 years old, just about every week some dear young girl would tell me how thankful she was that an older woman had come to their church. (laughs) It was a little (laughs) eye-opening. But all you really need to do to be older is just to find someone who is 
Younger. Younger. There you go. All of us are older than somebody. Even if you're still in high school or you have a daughter who's still in high school who's a believer, you still have an opportunity to live in this way so that younger girls grow up seeing the impact that God's word has made in your life. Each season of life will bring new perspectives that need to be shared with those who are younger than we are. Our church needs us to do that, to be transparent with one another, to share our own struggles, to share how God is at work in our lives. And God's grace has the power to make us this kind of women who can encourage other women in this way. So practically speaking, I find it helpful when I study these verses to think of myself as both an older woman and a younger woman. We can think of ourselves as the older woman as we have opportunities for encouraging those who are younger, sometimes those who are younger in years, and sometimes they're younger in the Lord. And we can think of ourselves as younger women looking for what we can learn from those who are older or perhaps more mature in the Lord than we are. It means keeping a posture of humility and teachability so that their influence brings good fruit in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to have a sign-up list in the back where you can go sign up to get yourself an older woman. <laughs> but it means that we look around. Um, who's my Wellspring sister? Who's in my Wellspring discussion group? Who's in my small group that meets during the week? With whom do I serve at Grace Bible Church? And we look for ways to strengthen our church through those relationships. Now, I want you to know that Grace Bible Church does have a mentoring ministry as well. There are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship as an older and younger woman together. And if that's you, either as an older woman or a younger woman, you can contact Chris Evans. Um, her contact information is at the end of your outline. She is one of the Wellspring teachers, and uh, one of her ministries is to connect older and younger women who are looking for help in finding this kind of relationship. So, what is the older woman to be? Well, the character of the gospel-transformed older woman is described in four ways. She's reverent. She's not a malicious gossip. She's not enslaved to much wine. And she teaches what is good. They're a package. They go together. And together they make her the kind of woman who is qualified to encourage and train younger women. But notice what this list doesn't say. It doesn't say she's married. It doesn't say she has kids. It doesn't say that her kids are believers or that she has all the answers. <laughs> this is a woman who has reverence for God. And that reverence is what qualifies her to encourage a younger woman. It's reverence that qualifies her. So what is reverence? The word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple. It's a reverent demeanor, suitable for a priest in a sacred place. Old Testament priests were set apart. They were to draw near to the presence of God in the temple. Similarly, Paul is saying that the older women are to do everything with a view towards worshiping God. It's what's described in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when it says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are to see all of our lives as set apart for God. Now, how do we cultivate reverence? 
It doesn't just happen because we get older. We have to be committed to drawing near to God in his word. It's discipline one. And a reverent woman is a doer of the word, not just a hearer, but one who's obedient and growing in her obedience. As the truths of the gospel saturate our hearts and take up residence there, we press on to grow in this reverent love for God and to make every aspect of our lives a reflection of our worship of him. This is what God's grace in the gospel makes possible in our lives. It's what it calls us to be. Now, this first quality, being reverent, may be functioning as an overarching quality with these other three describing what that looks like. What that looks like. A reverent woman is not a malicious gossip. She's not enslaved to much wine, and she teaches what is good. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Reverence and gossip, that just doesn't go together. Think how discouraging it would be to hear an older woman that you respect gossiping, repeating things that ought not to be repeated, slandering others. So number two on your outline is not malicious gossips. The Greek word for malicious gossip is diabolos, meaning devil. It's used 34 times in the New Testament for Satan, the one who accuses and slanders. Paul is saying we must not allow ourselves to be like that. We must not be backbiting. We must not make slanderous charges against others. God's grace in the gospel instructs us to deny this kind of ungodliness, to disassociate ourselves from it, to not even listen to it. Now, you might want to write this down. We are to be reverent women who restrain our tongues from participating in that which pushes others down in the eyes of others. I'm going to say that again. We are to be reverent women who restrain our tongues from participating in that which pushes others down in the eyes of others. That is what gossip does. We must be so careful keeping watch over our thoughts which overflow into our words is something we have to do all the time. Always being on guard about what we're thinking, what we're saying, what we're posting, what we're texting or listening to or reading. If any unwholesome speech is finding a place in our lives, then we need to go before the Lord and repent. That's why you have 1 John 1, 9 in your notes. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, next on the outline, number three, is not enslaved to much wine. Nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, but in multiple places he condemns drunkenness. Believers are exhorted not to be enslaved by wine. The point is that self-control must remain completely intact in a believer's life. The emphasis in this verse is the word enslaved. It's a term of bondage. It could be wine. Obviously, that was a problem with the women in the churches at Crete because that's what Paul addressed here. But it could be anything with which we are not using self-control. 
It could be too much TV or what we're watching on TV. It could be how we eat or how, our, uh, how we could have our spending out of control. It could be time on our phone or our computer or playing games or exercising. It could be anything that takes us away from our most important priorities. It goes back to doing all things for the glory of God. It can be healthy to do an assessment to see if our focus really is on honoring God in these areas. You can ask someone in your household or someone who knows you well, someone who you know will be really honest with you if they see anything in your life that they think you might be allowing yourself to be enslaved to. Another great revealer is to write down everything you do for two weeks or everything you spend. We might find that there's something we are allowing ourselves to be enslaved to. It can be very telling. So ask God to show you if there is any area of your life that's not honoring to him, where you might be allowing yourself to be enslaved. Because if it's not dealt with, it will affect our ministry with other women. So the reverent woman is a woman who's shepherding her heart away from gossip, away from enslavement to find her joy, her comfort, her peace in her Savior, Jesus. That is the fruit of the gospel in an older woman's life. Well, finally, number four, Paul says that older, the older women are to teach what is good. She's a teacher of winsome goodness, of what is holy and godly. It's an ability to help younger women understand the things that would be beneficial to her. So where does that come from? It comes from the Word of God. The Word of God gives us wisdom. Teaching what is good is not just giving our opinions or experiences, although there are times when that can be very helpful. But we need to be women who bring others to the Word of God and then encourage them to be obedient to it. And it's interesting that this Greek word doesn't indicate that it's necessarily formal teaching. It includes our conversations and our example. We need to be involved in each other's lives so that we can learn from one another. So gospel-transformed older women must be reverent, not gossips, not enslaved, and teachers of what is good and beneficial. The point here is not to dwell on our shortcomings. We all have them. Where there is sin, we need to confess it. Remember 1 John 1, 9. But the point is to ask ourselves, are we planting ourselves in the word of God and positioning ourselves to grow in being this kind of woman that God loves for us to be so that we can help younger women? It is important to look at these verses and understand these qualities, but don't lose sight of what's going on in this passage. No matter how godly Titus was, He wasn't the right person to encourage and teach the young women in this way. The church needed, and it still needs, godly older women to do this. Women who understand God's grace. Remember verse 11? Remember women who understand that God's grace saves us and trains us. Women who understand what Christ redeemed us for. And women who are living gospel-transformed lives. When we do that, then we are ready to help other women live gospel-transformed lives by our example, with our words, and with our instructions. Okay, I know we have...
kind of feels like we just got started, but this is a, the best place for us to take a break. So we'll take just maybe a quick little five-minute break, and we'll pick up with the rest of the passage. everybody here we are okay we are at Roman numeral 2 on the outline what transformed older women must train the young women to be so verse 4 begins so that they the older women may encourage the young women now encourage here means to train to advise to urge it's an ongoing influence Now, have you ever noticed that we may not always see our need to be trained? We don't always like it, especially when those older women are women in our own household or our family. But I want to urge you to urge all of us to cultivate a humble, teachable heart. Proverbs 1.5 says, A wise man will hear an increase in learning. A man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. It's a sign of wisdom to receive instruction. But Proverbs 1.7 says, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, being teachable is not natural. In school or in the workplace, it is a weakness not to know something. But believers are disciples. That means we are learners. So look for what you can learn from the godly women God has placed in your life. Ask questions. What a great way to learn from the women in your life. Ask questions. Sometimes through the most unexpected women, the Lord will teach us lessons that we never would have gone looking for. So let's uh, continue and read verses 4 and 5. Older women are to be this way so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. We are to train and urge the young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. That's what this is saying, to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. Now, the first two, to love her husband and love her children, address the gospel influence that a married woman has in her closest relationships. If you are not married, you still need to understand and love these qualities so that you can encourage others. I, uh, we need to help one another to think the best of our husbands. Don't let me bash my husband. I don't want you to let me do that. I don't want you to let me roll my eyes at something he says or to correct him in front of you. Help me love my husband. Think also of the wife of noble character in Proverbs 31. She is commended for bringing her husband good, not harm, all the days of her life. And I think that includes the days before marriage. 
If God has marriage in the future for you, then understanding and treasuring this kind of love is important preparation. Now, in the Greek, these are literally husband lover and children lover. It describes who the woman is. It's not just something that she does. So let's look at what it means to be a husband lover. This is phileo love. It's the love of friendship. A wife is to pursue being devoted to her husband, cherishing him, being friends with him. It's a love that communicates tender affection for her husband. And this is all the more astounding when we remember that many Cretan marriages were arranged. In that setting, a woman who truly and deeply loved her husband would stand out as a gospel representative. And with all of the suppression of truth and confusion going on in our culture about marriage, we also have an opportunity to stand out as gospel representatives by the way we treasure marriage and love our husbands. Although today marriage is based on personal choice and love, this is still a kind of love which must be learned. It's something a woman grows into. It's learned as it's practiced. It is sadly all too easy to develop a critical spirit um, towards our husbands or towards people in general. And so we have to cultivate this love and encourage one another in this. To have a loving, fond affection for our husband, not based on his worthiness, but on, but because it's what honors God. A married woman has the privilege of lavishing God's grace on her husband, and that's what we get to encourage one another to do. Each wife must learn to love her own husband. That means get to know him, study him, ask him how you can be most helpful to him. So how do we teach this? How do we learn this? Well, first, we need to understand God's purpose for marriage. It's a picture of Christ and the church. Marriage is about displaying the self-giving love of the Godhead. It is not, first and most, about what makes me happy. <laughs> Contrary to popular opinion, God wants, to us to, God wants to use our challenges and struggles to draw us closer to him and to grow our character so that we reflect him in our marriages. When we understand God's purpose, then we can see our struggles as God's tool to conform us to the image of Christ. We'll begin to look more like Christ as we give up selfishness and control. And we're going to get to hear even more about that in a future lesson. But secondly, we need to understand the priority of this relationship. This relationship is listed first. It's after, after our relationship with Jesus, our husband is to be first in our heart, in our mind, in our priorities. That means he's our priority before our children, before ministry, before activities. Do you encourage women in that? It's easy to say, but it's much more difficult to actually live out consistently when there are so many things that call for our attention. It's easy to get so busy that things get turned around and we find ourselves expecting our husbands to help us and forgetting that in Genesis 2, God created us to be a suitable helper to them. Um, now, that doesn't mean that our husbands can't serve us. But by God's grace, if you have a godly husband, he is probably a servant leader and he probably serves in many ways. But the, the difference here is the expectation. And so we need to encourage one another to give our best to our husband, to be thoughtful of him, 
to be respectful of him. Ephesians 5.33 says, The wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The verse doesn't say, if he deserves it, or if he earns it. That's how the world thinks. But the gospel is put on display when we respect our husband out of our love for God. It honors God when we have a heart attitude that joyfully serves our husband, that finds joy in putting his needs ahead of our own, that treats our husband like he really is our best friend, not comparing him to anyone else. This is the kind of love that young women need to be trained in. Well, that brings us to encouraging the young women to be children lovers. And although the most obvious application is to mothers, all of us have the opportunity to be women who love and cherish children. It could be our grandchildren, but there are children all around us whom we can love, especially at Grace Bible Church. And it is so encouraging to see that, that many of you, uh, the many, many ways that many of you are involved in the lives of children. And again, this is a love that can be taught. It is selfless, it's affectionate. This is phileo love again. We are to cherish and enjoy children. And you would think that this love would come naturally. And most mothers do have a natural affection for their children. But that can be strained at 1 a.m. And you're exhausted either because those little ones are awake or those older ones aren't home yet. Sometimes there's things we really need to get done and our children need our attention. Remember, this was written when they didn't have all the modern conveniences that we have. It takes a lot of work to shepherd children and to love them enough to be consistent with training and with discipline and with meaningful conversations, especially as they get older. I thought it was going to take less time when they got older. <laughs> Not yet. Uh, mothers can easily be discouraged. We can lose sight of the influence that God has designed for us to have in spite of our insecurities and our weaknesses. It can start to feel like a burden. But we need to remind women that loving children is our priority. It's second on the list after loving our husband. We need to view mothering not as an inconvenience, but as a privilege and a pleasure. God places a great value on that role, and so must we. When our friends feel weighed down with the mundane tasks of caring for children, we get to remind them that their work has eternal value. They're providing an environment where children are learning the things of God. A mother's unselfish service as she meets their needs is the perfect setting to communicate to them the selfless love of God. Now, some stages are easier than others, but as we persevere in loving children, we again get to show such a contrast with the world. This kind of love demonstrates God's grace at work in our lives and in our church. With our kids being grown, I have found it a tremendous blessing to invest in relationships with younger children in the church. And it is just delightful, the kinds of conversations and the conversations about God's word and about the gospel you can have with those little ones. So just be thoughtful about how you can be a children-loving woman. Well, the next quality that older women are to teach young women is being sensible or self-controlled. And you can see where this is sort of the flip side of what the older women were told when they were not to be enslaved. An older woman must not be enslaved to anything if she's going to help a younger woman to be sensible. So this word means to be prudent, 
and thoughtful. It's having a sound mind, being led by God's word rather than being controlled by emotions or impulses. What a blessing that this is something we can learn. So what are some emotions which we might be tempted to let control us? Fear, worry, anxiety, anger, sadness, self-pity, desire, maybe for things, for admiration, for happiness. Emotions are not necessarily sinful, but they are horrible masters. They were never designed to rule us. But because God's grace has appeared and has instructed us to live sensibly, remember verse 12, we're not enslaved to those emotions. God enables us to have a sound mind so that emotions are not ruling us. And as we cultivate this soundness of mind in our thoughts and in our feelings, we are so much better prepared to be prudent with the way we live, how we manage our time, our money, our responsibilities, our relationships. Try to get a mental picture of this verse as I read it. It's describing an ancient city, which if, you, if you've read any history, cities used to be surrounded by a big wall. That was their protection. But Proverbs 25.8 says that like a city that is broken into and without walls, all its protection gone, that's like a man who has no control over his spirit. Self-control offers protection from all kinds of sin and foolishness. And it protects God's word from dishonor. So... Let's say a younger woman comes to you and says, Hey, can you teach me to be sensible? And you think, Well, I wish I were doing a little better than I am, but I want to be sensible, and I want to grow in being sensible, and I want to put off those things that are hindering me from being sensible. And so we can honestly reply, Let's grow together. Let's grow together. Let's go to God's word. Let's apply the gospel. Let's pray. Let's encourage one another. Maybe there's another woman we can find to help us both. And let's praise God when by his grace we grow in our self-control. That's what it means to care for one another as older women and younger women. Well, that brings us to pure. This word means to be morally pure, to live in a holy manner. It's a practical holiness and purity. It's a life of repentance. It's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts, but it's a heart attitude with an inner longing to honor God in all that we do. Now you can see an emphasis here for women. The older women are to be reverent, so they can teach the young women to be pure. They are different words, but it's the same idea. And there's a connection between pure and sensible. Having a sound mind is necessary to having a pure life. When we are self-controlled and serious about our walk with God, it enables us to deny our own desires and the lusts of our flesh in order to follow God's ways. A young woman needs to learn Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. 
older women need to teach younger women to renew their minds with scripture. That's how she'll learn to be pure. There are so many opportunities for impurity, so many opportunities for a lack of holiness. We have to guard against impure thoughts and words, against immodesty. We have to guard against impurity in what we watch and read, and we have to fight for purity in how we think and relate to men. There are a lot of temptations. You probably know what your weaknesses are, where you're most easily tempted. Can I plead with you to flee? Your church needs you to flee. Your household needs you to flee. So please flee so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Let an older woman help you. With 2 Timothy 2.22, it says to flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What a wonderful way to get help with purities, to ask an older woman to help you. Well, next we have workers at home. This describes a woman who has a heart for her household, who understands the value and the priority of the work and relationships and opportunities in her home. And again, it can be learned. Now, we need to be careful how we understand this. If we're not employed outside our home, we can't automatically conclude that we are workers at home. And if we are employed outside our home, whether we're single or married, we can't conclude that we can't be workers at home or that it's not our responsibility. This is a quality that's not optional for any woman, and it's not optional in any season of life. Just like being pure or being sensible, it describes who we are to be. It's not just what we do at a certain season of our lives. This is a heart quality that's necessary for the honor of God's word. It's important. So Paul expresses concern about women who aren't workers at home. In 2 Timothy 3, he describes homes with weak women who are weighed down with sin and led by their impulses. These are not women who are pursuing purity and self-control. These weak women make their homes targets for evil men. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says that there's a temptation for young widows not to work in their homes, but to be idle and go from house to house and gossip. And if they do, they are giving the adversary an opportunity to speak reproachfully. And the reason Paul is concerned is because he understands the importance that God's word places on the home. In the New Testament, households are noted for hosting and serving churches, extending hospitality, training children, teaching the gospel, instructing in sound doctrine and godliness, and refreshing believers, missionaries, and even those in prison. The home is important to God's work in the church. It's essential. And as women, we have a role as workers in our homes. We must not let our homes hinder God's work. So what does the work of a household include? Well, the greatest priority is to love and nurture the people who live there and who visit there. It means being faithful with the work that a household requires and learning diligence 
in managing the many tasks. So that as much as it's up to us, our home is a place that reflects the gospel's work in our lives. Being a worker at home means choosing to find joy in the many opportunities to serve others where we live. And it takes time. For the married women with children at home, it means choosing to find contentment in helping her husband and shepherding her children. And there are seasons when this work leaves very little room for anything else, even very good things. So how does that leave us to think about work outside the home? Well, think about the Proverbs 31 woman. She is busy. She is buying fields. She is selling garments. She is thinking of people beyond her home, but it's clear that this wasn't contradictory to her being a worker at home. She was still very busy caring for the needs of her household. And, uh, and, and all the things she did outside of her household were for the benefit of those in her household. It wasn't for selfish gain, and that was evident to those in her household. Lydia is another example in Acts 16. She was a businesswoman. She was most likely single, and she was hospitable. She pleaded with Paul for the opportunity to serve him in her home. Ministering with her home was one of the first evidences of God's grace in her life when she came to faith. Another example is Priscilla. She was married to Aquila, and Acts 18 says that they were tent makers. That was their business, their vocation. And she was also a fellow worker in Christ Jesus, and and she and her husband hosted a church in their home. So it appears that her work and her ministry were not a hindrance to her role as a worker in her home because she and her husband were able to make their home available to the church. So there are circumstances when a woman works outside her home. If you are single, if you and you're not living with your parents, or maybe your husband is disabled, or you're a single mom. If you're married, especially if you have children, it's a weighty decision to work outside the home, and you need to make that decision carefully with your husband as together you evaluate if it's the best thing for your marriage, if it's the best thing for your family in your particular season. Or you may need to work outside the home to submit to your husband. But no matter what the circumstance, there needs to be a clear way for every woman to be a worker at home. So if you do work outside the home, here's what you need to do. Be a homeworking woman. Remember, that's the description of the kind of person you are, the priority you place on your household. Be a homeworking woman who also works outside your home. And do it without guilt. Do it with all your heart as serving the Lord. That's why you have Colossians 3.23 in your notes. And it's difficult. It's difficult to do both. There may be a lot of good things that you have to turn down, but you can trust your Savior. Trust your Master. If this is what he has for you, then his grace is sufficient for you. This is his plan for you to give him glory and to be made more like Jesus right now. Either way, Whether you're working outside the home or you do your job from home or your job is your home, we are called to be home-working women. So shepherd your heart. Don't be weighed down by sins and led by impulses. Don't be idle. Don't be easily distracted by all the things that fight for our focus and attention. 
um, that tries to take our, our devotion away from those people we're with, but rather protect the honor of God's word by esteeming and prioritizing the work of your home and be faithful to joyfully nurture and serve the people there. Again, I see so many of you just excel in this, do it with such joy. But if it's a struggle for you, then find an older woman to help you cultivate a love for the work of your home. And if you're married and you have any concerns or questions at all about how this plays out in your home, I encourage you to ask your husband to listen with you um, to the link in your notes. It's a build message in which Scott shepherds the men about leading their wives and being Titus two women. Um, Scott will be teaching it again I, uh, late November, so you could wait and listen to this year's or listen to the link, which was last year's, but it'll be essentially the same message. But it could just be really helpful for you and your husband to have a growing unity in your understanding of God's call on your life to be a home worker. Well, that brings us to kind. And this word kind is more often translated good in the New Testament. It's a goodness that comes from the heart. And then it overflows into our words and actions that benefit others. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. So we are right back at Discipline 1 again. We're talking about the heart. The way our heart gets filled with good treasure is by meeting with God in his word. Do you see how we never, ever graduate from Discipline 1? You might be familiar with the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. When Martha complained that her sister Mary wasn't helping her, Jesus responded by saying that Mary had chosen the good part. That's the same word. She chose the good part when she chose to sit and listen to Jesus. Discipline one is the greatest good we can do for our own hearts. When we, um, when we draw near to God in his word, that's his tool for transforming us to be those who overflow with his kindness and goodness. And again, like we've seen with so many of these heart qualities, that goodness will overflow into our words. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word come from your mouth, but only such a word as is good. What kind of good? That it's good for edification. That means building up according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. When we are good and kind, it will show in our words. We'll be thoughtful and self-controlled and intentional about speaking with grace so that others are built up and encouraged, will be wise about when to speak those words. And kindness will also show in what we do, like what we do as homeworkers. You know, it's interesting that kindness follows right on the heels of workers at home in this verse. Often our hard attitude is most clearly revealed right in our households with those closest relationships. And sadly, very often our household is where we can be most careless with kindness. We can start keeping track in our mind of whose turn it is or who has served more. 
Or we might not think it's important to be careful with our tone of voice or our facial expressions. To be certain that they express kindness and grace along with our words and actions. But since genuine kindness is something God produces in our lives and it flows from our hearts, then it cannot be based on how someone else is acting or how they're treating us. It's not a reaction to those around us. It's a reflection of our Heavenly Father. Luke 6.35, it says, Jesus said, Love your enemies and do good. Do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men like us. God's grace in the gospel makes us more and more like the God who saved us. And one of God's means to bring that about is to use us in one another's lives as older women encourage younger women to be kind. Well, that brings us then to being subject to her own husband. So how do you view submission? That's what it means to be subject. How do you think about that? Do you find it appealing Or do you maybe cringe a little bit sometimes? Well, most of us don't start out loving the idea of submission. Before Christ, all we wanted to do was self-rule. Now, as those who are regenerate through the gospel, we can still find that residue of sin, of wanting to grasp for for control and self-rule. Even though God places us under authority at many different levels, and it's always for our good. And so we need to let our minds be transformed by the truth of God's word and encourage younger women to think biblically about submission as well. Submission is relevant whether we are married or single. A biblical understanding of submission prepares us to encourage married friends. Um, Like I said before, I need you to help me. Don't let me entertain a heart of rebellion towards my husband's God-given role in my life. Don't let me think I know better. Understanding submission prepares us for marriage, if that's in our future. No matter what our season of life, there are institutions of authority to which we must submit. Our family, our job, our church, government. And the heart struggle that we have with authority very often boils down to whether or not we trust God to sovereignly lead us through fallen people that he has placed in authority over us. So understanding submission will help us deal with that struggle in other settings as well. So this word subject in the Greek is hupotasso, and it means to voluntarily, voluntarily place oneself under. That's important to know. We are placing ourselves under. It's not like it's okay for us to lead unless our husband does this, pushes us down and says, quit it. Of course, he always has the freedom to remind us if we're struggling, too. But the command is for us to do this ourselves, voluntarily. We're lining ourselves up under his leadership. Now, submission did not begin with the New Testament. It did not begin when sin entered the world. And it didn't even begin at creation, when God created woman to be a suitable helper for man. Submission goes back even before that because submission is represented in the very character of God. Look at the quote in your outline from Wayne Grudem. 
It reads, the idea of headship and submission never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And in this most basic of all authority relationships, authority is not based on gifts or ability. It's just there. The relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one of leadership and authority on the one hand, and voluntary, willing, joyful submission to that authority on the other hand. We can learn from this that submission to a rightful authority is a noble virtue. It is a privilege. It's something good and desirable. It is the virtue that has been demonstrated by the eternal Son of God forever. It is his glory, the glory of the Son as he relates to his Father. And to further display this glory, God instituted a husband's leadership and a wife's submission at the beginning of creation, prior to the entrance of sin. Ephesians 5 reveals God's ultimate intention for headship and submission in marriage. It is to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. What an opportunity we have to help the world understand how biblical marriage points to the gospel. So God determined that we are to voluntarily place ourselves under our husband's authority. God designed submission for his glory. So if submission is such a good thing, why can it be so difficult? Well, we could point to a lot of things, but uh, the biggest struggle to submit comes because of our own sinful heart. We love to rule ourselves. We love to trust in ourselves. We love to think we're right. Don't forget what we learned last time about our heart. That will really help fix a lot of this thinking. And so we need to realize that our battle with submission is not a battle against our husband or against someone else in authority. It's a battle with the sin in our own heart. That's our biggest adversary. Even when it feels to us like our adversary is our husband, we need to remember Ephesians 5.22 where it tells us, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The Lord is the one to whom we are entrusting ourselves when we submit. That's where our focus needs to be. Not on our husband's worthiness, but on the Lord's trustworthiness. He is the one we are trusting when we submit. So we saw that submission means to voluntarily place oneself under. It's done willingly without being contentious. Now, contentious means exhibiting a wearisome tendency to quarrels and disputes. It's kind of ugly. There is no demonstration of the father's relationship with the son in contentiousness. There is no demonstration of Jesus' relationship with the church in that. Proverbs 19.13 says, The contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. We need to agree as often as we can. It doesn't mean we never speak up or share our, uh, our opinion, particularly about major decisions. We do need to speak up in appropriate, helpful ways. But we shouldn't make it our habit to think that every decision our husband makes has to be discussed with us. Just because he doesn't do something the way we would doesn't make his way wrong. That may seem self-evident, but just watch yourself. (laughs) 
In Genesis 2, God made Eve to be a suitable helper to Adam. And so that can help us evaluate, am I being helpful or am I being wearisome? What would my husband say if I asked him? It's also important to understand that submission does not mean that we follow our husband into sin. If we see a sinful pattern in our husband that's detrimental to our family, but our husband doesn't agree, we need to make a gracious appeal. Ask, we need to ask our husband if together we can obtain counsel, maybe from an elder in our church or from a godly couple. Being a suitable helper in the truest sense of the word may mean humbly requesting assistance when we're concerned about the consequences to our family of our husband's choices, but always, always done with a heart to honor your husband. It needs to be done with prayer. It needs to be done always examining ourselves through the log in our own eye before we try to help our husband with that speck in his and with the utmost in respect and humility. So let's finish with 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 1 says, In the same way, and he's pointing back to Christ at the cross, You wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. What is the instruction even with this kind of a husband? Be submissive. Let them see your pure, respectful behavior. Verse 3 says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Submission begins in the heart. By cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit. Again, that's why discipline one is foundational. There's no way to cultivate genuine biblical submission without faithfully submitting ourselves to God in his word. We need to understand that there is protection when a woman comes under the headship of her husband. And we can't assume that all women understand this principle of submission because it's so contrary to the world's messages. Older women need to understand and then help younger women understand that this puts God's character on display. It strengthens families, it strengthens our church, and it protects the reputation of God's word. It matters. It's about our heart and our willingness to trust God and submit to him by submitting to our husband. We need to spur one another on in that. Well, that brings us to Roman numeral three. What happens when transformed older women are all that they should be? Why do we as women need to be careful how we live? Well, it's because the world needs to see the power of the gospel at work. It needs to see, the world needs to see that we belong to Christ. It needs to see his image lived out in us. Titus 3, 3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Just the opposite of all those things we just saw, right? We used to be just like the world around us, but God saved us. And how will the world see that? By us living obedient to what we see in Titus 2. 
So now we might be thinking, there is no way I can help anybody in some of these things because I have so far to grow myself. Don't forget our lesson with the big blue folder. We are in a mixed condition, right? We are all in a mixed condition. We are going to struggle. And God is going to bring the growth as we persevere and encourage one another. John the Baptist in John 1 said he was unworthy to even untie Jesus' sandals. John the Baptist. But he still did what God gave him to do. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that to him, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Why did this self-proclaimed least of all saints preach the gospel? He says it was God's grace to him. 1 Timothy 1, he called himself a chief of sinners. Why does a chief of sinners preach the gospel? Because of God's grace. And remember Titus 2.11, it's God's grace to us to be part of one another's lives as reverent older women encouraging younger women and as teachable younger women receiving encouragement and training from older women so that God's word is honored. What a privilege, because when we do this, the world can see the truth and the power of the gospel being lived out in our lives. And that is what protects the honor of God's word, and that's what gives God glory. I want to pray, and then I just have um, one more practical suggestion for cultivating these qualities to share. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you, Father, for the book of Titus. I am so thankful for these passages that talk about your grace and that talk about your kindness that has appeared, that talk about that you are the one who has redeemed us. Father, thank you that you have saved us. You've promised that Jesus will never leave us. And you are the reason that we can be these kind of women. And we're thankful. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us not to feel overwhelmed but to be encouraged, Father, to, to be able to see where, by your grace, you are growing her to be more like Christ. And then I pray that she would be encouraged that because of your, God, because of your grace, she would want to press on in growing as this kind of a woman. Lord, grow our relationships with one another. Please, Lord, use it for the glory of your name, for the protection of your word, for the strengthening of our church, for the protection of our homes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one last um, suggestion I want to give you um, comes from something that Scott Maxwell does with the men in BUILD. Um, He gives them a booklet when they go through the deacon qualifications, and he encourages them to regularly pray through each one of those qualities. And so you might want to decide that every day or every couple of days, maybe once a week, um, you go to this passage and you start at the top of the start at the top of the verses and you pray about that one quality and you review what it means you thank God for where you see his grace at work in your life to produce that and then you identify ways that you still need to grow maybe things that you need to repent of pray about ways that you can encourage other women in that quality 
And then whatever your time frame is, the next day or the next week, get out that verse again and move down to that next quality and do the same thing. You might want to put them on an index card. Um, in another, not two weeks from now, but in four weeks, we're actually going to have a whole lesson on the discipline of shepherding our heart in prayer. And I'm going to give you a tool to um, help you grow in using scripture in your prayer. And that there will be a resource for um, praying about these qualities. And I, in my own life, have just found that more helpful um, to really help me grow is to consistently come back to an area where I, I need to grow and to keep praying about it, keep looking at what God's word has to say about it, rather than just hearing about it once a year at Wellspring, thinking, oh dear, I have a long ways to go, and then not really thinking about it again for another year. <laughs> so that's just an encouragement to keep it in front of us. Let's keep growing. Let's keep encouraging each other to grow. Um, one uh, last thing is that next time Tom Angstead will be here with us. He's one of our elders. He is a gifted, godly, biblical counselor. And he's going to teach us a lesson um, that's all about what does it mean to shepherd our hearts all through the day. You know, we can kind of fall into thinking that shepherding our hearts is just what we're doing when we've got our Bible open. And that is certainly shepherding our heart. But uh, he's going to help us see what that looks like um, the rest of the time. It's a very helpful lesson. It was a new lesson last year, but this is the first time that he'll be here to teach it. So really encourage you to do everything you can to be here for that lesson. Um, Lori has the journals. If anybody wants a, a notebook, we, like I said, we have plenty. Take one, even if you aren't decided, because then you'll have it. <laughs>